We're in Mark 8 today, verse 1 through 21. We're going to read a bigger section. Guys, we're getting ready for our fast coming up July 21 through August 10th. You can sign up to participate in our fast on the website or on socials. And if you sign up, we'll give you some more information, um, some details on, on what we're doing, what we're praying for. A lot of folks are asking what kind of fast they have to do. Uh, that's not a Caleb question. That's a God question. Okay, you ask him what kind of fast you have to do. Um, but I know a lot of folks are doing Daniel fast or like a sun up to sundown fast. If you've never fasted before, um, I would say challenge yourself, but maybe step into it with a Daniel fast or a sun up to sundown rather than going straight water um, if it's your first go. But if the Lord tells you to, then more power to you. Let's pray over the word, and I want to I want to take some time to examine a few things here. Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would make this church a house that knows how to bear their hearts bare before you. And we ask today, in Jesus' name, that you would strip us of arrogance, strip us of pride, strip us of self-sufficiency. Would you pierce us? Wound us, Lord, for your glory. You alone are worthy of our worship. So cast down all idolatry this morning in the name of Jesus. We bless you. Somebody say in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're in, we're in Mark 8, 1 through 21. We talked for just a minute about Hudson Taylor last week. This missionary, British missionary to, to China, he went to the Inlands. People had... Missionaries had been sent to the coast of China before, but there wasn't really ever a, a season or a movement where people were pressing inland. And so he's, he started the, the China inland mission, um, believing that the church needed to, to get to folks who had never had the gospel. I want to read to you just a quick statement that he made in this season of coming off the field. He was back in England. We're talking 1850s. Um, and he was burdened for people to go to China with the gospel. But in this season of being in England, he, he was continually going to church services. At one point, he said he walked to a church, to a church service with at least a 1,000 people celebrating uh, what they have in Jesus, celebrating salvation. But he could think of millions and millions and millions of Chinese people dying without ever hearing the gospel. And he couldn't get any British people to be willing to go to the field. So he, he was so grieved because he had all these people celebrating what they had in Jesus, but totally unwilling to t- to pick up the Great Commission and serve. And so he wrote this. He wrote, can all the Christians of England still sit with folded arms while these multitudes in China are perishing? They're perishing for lack of knowledge, for lack of that knowledge which England possesses so richly, which has made England what England is and made us what we are. What does the master teach us? Is it not that if one sheep out of a hundred be lost, we're to leave the 99 and seek that one? But here the proportions are almost reversed. We stay at home with the one sheep and take no heed to the 99 that are perishing. Again, in his day, there are virtually no missionaries being sent. And he's saying, if Jesus said, I'll leave the 99 to pursue the one, this church, he's in England in this period, there are churches everywhere and the churches are flourishing. He says, he's saying England is this little small region that's filled with people who know Jesus but they're unwilling to go to the millions of people in China without the gospel. And when Hudson Taylor began to speak, many were unwilling to hear the truth in what the man had to say. 
And when someone with conviction, this is what I'm getting at, so perk your ears up for a second. When someone with conviction and unction stands before a congregation and speaks the truth plainly, many times the congregation will begin to squirm. And the congregation, they'll revert to what you would call in, in debate or in logic, like an ad hominem argument. In other words, rather than hearing the truth of what Hudson Taylor had to say, many people began to attack his character. Because what Hudson Taylor had to say actually spoke directly to their heart and made them uncomfortable. Rather than sitting on the operation table and letting the knife of the spirit cut off their selfishness, they started to squirm and point fingers back at Hudson Taylor. We see this over and over in history. You need to hear what I'm saying today. John the Baptist was so loved. There were like thousands and thousands of people that loved John the Baptist and loved his ministry. And there were like thousands and thousands of people who hated his guts. What is the delineation? What is the dividing line between a person who loves the prophet and a person who hates the prophet? Truth can be so, so confrontational. And Jesus was a man filled with grace and truth, John 1 told us. And many people will see in Jesus' ministry today, they were willing to receive the word. Let it challenge them. Let it confront them. Let it call a spade a spade. Let it provoke in them change and transition and repentance. But many were unwilling to hear the truth of what he had to say. So they began to squirm, throw these kind of ad hominem attacks, shift the attention in another direction, do everything they can to resist the truth so that they could remain in sin. If you want a Christianity that never challenges you on your alcoholism, you don't want Christianity. If you want a faith that never calls you selfish, you don't want this faith. If you want the kind of religion that always champions you and encourages you and holds you up as the greatest image of perfection in all of mankind, you don't want Christianity. You want a life coach. You don't want Jesus. Because when you hear Jesus and when you look at Jesus long enough, he starts calling you on some stuff. But it requires such humility and lowliness. What Jesus calls spiritual ears, what Jesus calls spiritual eyes and a soft heart, humility, lowliness, and a slow down and listen to to what's being said, to to allow the truth to call, call you out. Because your flesh, hear me say this. The moment someone puts their finger, maybe someone stands up and they say, man, I just feel like God's speaking to me um, on some things for you. And I, I need to share this with you. I feel like God's calling you to some transition. God's calling you to maybe bow in humility. The moment someone starts to put their finger on issues in your heart, everything in your flesh will scream, shut up. Everything in your flesh will go, there's a finger pointed at me. I need to get 16 more to point back. Everything in your flesh, your face starts to grow red and you start to grind your teeth and you start to go, who, who are you? How dare you talk to me about me? The flesh resists the truth to death. And when, when the truth begins to be preached, when the truth comes from a pulpit or in a small group, many people start to squirm. And you can't have discernment and your flesh at the same time. Like we want, we want wisdom. We want to be wise 
people, but you can't have wisdom if you allow your red face to, to cause you to rise up with anger and frustration. Man, I love this church. I would take 10 bullets for this church today. I love these people. I don't want to go anywhere else. I don't want another job. I don't want another congregation. I love this church. But when I speak truth and with, with the best plain, articulate, you know, the, the best of my ability from the text, I am not, I am not calling anyone out because I hate you or despise you or all I can do is bring truth. And I watch many get so frustrated with me. You get as frustrated with me as I am with Brad, nine days out of ten. Just wildly frustrated. And it's like, man, you're, you're actually not frustrated with me. You're frustrated with the truth to the best of my ability to speak the truth. I know sometimes I'm wrong. Very rarely. It's, it's one thing to hear a pastor slip with a text or I come to a conclusion that's not perfect. And for you to go, man, I don't, I don't know if that was the right conclusion or I don't know if he handled that scripture well today. That's one thing. It's another thing to hear a man speak from the text and start to throw stones and squirm and leave the church mad. And how dare he talk about politics or man, I, I, I just love Jesus and to love Jesus requires is a logical requirement that you learn to love truth. You can't love the Holy Ghost and hate conviction. You can't. It's one of his chief ministries to convict the church of sin and righteousness. You can't, gosh, charismatic people who love the spirit. You can't sing. God send revival. God send your spirit. We love your glory. We want your presence and then hate conviction. It's so counterintuitive. You've got to love it. You've got to lay on the operation table and say, Jesus, if there is truth that you need to bring to me, bring it, man. I'm not asking you to be my life coach, Jesus. I'm asking you to be my Lord. But what happens again is when truth is brought, people start to squirm and twist and get angry and frustrated. They start to throw up straw men or build arguments that no one's even talking about to try to debunk or ad hominem. They start to to, to insult the carrier. But let me tell you something, guys. Let me, Listen to me. Some of the most prophetic cutting things God's ever delivered to me have come from the mouth of a donkey man. Do you know what I mean by that? That's a biblical image of of Balaam's donkey. Like I've had people deliver prophetic words to me and, and man, it challenged me. If I wanted to look at the person and go, you are the absolute weirdest individual I have ever met. I could have. But the question is not whether or not this individual was weird. The question is whether or not what this person says is true. Are you guys following what I'm saying? So Jesus' entire ministry, people are not asking the question, is what he's saying and doing truth? People are constantly trying to resist and prod and twist and turn and throw stones at and insult his character. And, and there's a great number of people who will miss the Son of God incarnate, offering them grace because they're unwilling to stop and listen. They need to have the final word. They need to be right. It is a basic biblical truth that you are not right. You are depraved. You're not omniscient. You don't know everything. You don't have perfect perspective. Humble yourself before God and listen. I don't know why I'm mad. It's... Okay, let me read you the text. And what we're going to find today is we're reading a bigger portion, but we actually have three kind of encounters that are happening. 
First, we're going to see a repeat miracle. Jesus is going to feed 4,000 people with miraculous bread. Remember we read just a few chapters ago that he, that he fed 5,000. He multiplied bread and fed 5,000. Twelve baskets left over. This morning he's going to feed 4,000 and it was seven baskets left over. But the, the kind of twist is that this morning he's feeding Gentiles. After he feeds Gentiles, he turns and he begins to be confronted again with the Pharisees. So we have this interaction with Gentiles first. Then we have this interaction with the Pharisees second. And then third, he's on the boat with the disciples. And he's going to say to the disciples, watch for the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And the disciples are going to show their stupidity once again. And I can say that because I have received that impartation of, of dumbness from the early church. That's a joke. Mark 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered them, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? In other words, there's no McDonald's anywhere nearby Jesus. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish. Having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. They took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. So they had seven little round loaves of bread. They fed 4,000 people. And now they've got seven baskets full left over. There were about 4,000 people. He sent them away. Immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district called Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. So now we've transitioned into this conversation with the Pharisees. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Verse 12. He sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. Verse 14. Now he's in the boat. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive and understand? This is spiritual insight. Do you have no spiritual insight and clarity? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? How many baskets? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? First, we want to notice that this feeding of the 4,000, it feels like a repeat miracle. Again, he just did 5,000 with 12 loaves. There are are a ton of similarities happening here. Uh, The thousands are in a desolate place. So again, they're far from the market, far from restaurants, they're far from grandma's cooking, they're way out in the wilderness. These thousands are hungry and tired. Jesus is worried about them making a journey back into a town um, because they've been sitting in the heat and they're exhausted. 
So Jesus draws attention to the issue. Here we're told that Jesus says, I have compassion for this people. He looks to heaven. He breaks, blesses the meal. All of it's beautiful and all of it's familiar. But there are several distinctions here that we want to catch. The primary distinction between this miracle and the first miracle is that Jesus is now in a Gentile region. There's every reason to believe he's speaking to Gentiles. And as he's preaching to these Gentiles, he realizes that for them to go home would literally put them in physical danger. And he calls his disciples and says, look, we've done this before. We've gone through this routine. How many loaves of bread do you have? We're going to feed these people. Now, off the cuff, to us as a Gentile congregation, some 2,000 years later, we're going, cool, we fed Gentiles, whatever. But when we think about the context, remember that it was just you know a few lines ago when a Gentile woman came to Jesus and she said to Jesus, my daughter's demonized. And Jesus said, it's not right to give bread to the dogs. In other words, Jesus said, my ministry is to the Jews first. I can't give my bread to Gentiles. And we said that as you read the text, you realize that Jesus is prodding this woman. He's giving her like, it's, it's not a devil's advocate perfectly, but he's saying to her, like, I didn't come for Gentiles, right? And as Jesus says this, he's inviting the woman to argue with him. Good teachers do that. They invite argumentation because they want the student to come to the conclusion in themselves. So he says to the woman, man, look, my bread's not for Gentiles. It's for Jews first. He adds first at the end. Jews first. The woman says, yeah, but even the dogs get to eat the scraps from the table. And Jesus says, you're right. Go, your daughter is healed. Well, now we're just a few lines later and Jesus is quite literally giving bread to Gentiles. And it's fascinating to think Jesus's ministry is to the Jew first. And so the Jews got their day of divine bread. It was, you know, three or four chapters back. But now he stands in a Gentile region. And the scripture says, you need to hear this because it's so important, uh, historically speaking. The scripture says that Jesus stands before these Gentiles. He watches them hungry and tired. These are pagans. These are people from pagan backgrounds. They've worshipped in pagan temples. They have not served the God of Israel. They don't know the God of Israel. They're not children of Abraham. They didn't come from Isaac. They're not from God's elect lineage. They are not the nation of Israel that God's promised Messiah to. These are just people. Sinful, broken people. And here they are in the desert being taught by Jesus, this very Jewish Messiah. And rather than Jesus looking at this group of pagans and saying, look, you're tired and hungry, go figure that out on your own. Jesus expresses divine compassion. The scripture says he had compassion on them. Now, theologically speaking, we've learned so far that when Jesus feeds people with miraculous bread, he's teaching the people that he is the bread from heaven. He teaches us in John 6. Jesus says, I am the manna in the wilderness. In other words, my coming, I'm sent from heaven. My life, my death will be life to you. I'll give you strength and sustenance and hope and joy and peace. I'll fulfill you. I'll satisfy you. You'll drink from me and you'll never thirst again. I'll be it for you. Everything you long for can be found in me. That's what he says to the Jews in John 6. That's what he's showing the Jews earlier in Mark. But now he's, he's, he's playing out that same imagery before pagans. He's saying, bread of life, miraculous bread, eat. Now, that's, that's fascinating and wonderful to us as most of us in the room being ethnically Gentile. We're all going, praise God that this gospel, this 
Jesus is not confined or restricted to only the children of Abraham, the natural children of Abraham, but this Jesus has compassion on pagans like us. This Jesus has compassion on us who don't have a Jewish lineage. We didn't come from Isaac's seed. Now, that's, that, that's revelatory at this point in history. That a Jewish Messiah would care for Gentile people. It's, it's extremely revelatory. And we're forced to begin to think about the fact that Jesus in John 1 is called the Word of God. Meaning that Jesus is the, the best representation. He fully reflects God. He's God in the flesh. And He is expounding for us. His life is an exposition. His life is a, is a scholarly paper on God. He's teaching us God. And so we're learning as Jesus feeds the Gentiles that God has compassion even for the pagans. Now, that should be celebrated. That should be adored. The disciples should see Jesus and go, Good God, what you're doing is not just for us. It's for the nations of the earth. When Isaiah said that his house would be a house of prayer, that the streams of nations would flood to, when the Scriptures say that the entire world will love Yahweh and love Messiah, you really meant for that to come to pass. The disciples should celebrate here. What a revelation we have of grace. After this great revelation of grace, this great revelation of the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the scripture shows us that after this miracle, immediately Jesus is confronted again by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. R.T. France, commentator, points out that after the first feeding miracle, Jesus was confronted by Pharisees, and immediately after the second feeding miracle, he's going to be confronted by Pharisees. So Jesus says, look at the compassion of God. Watch me display mercy even to the outcast. And on the heels of displaying the mercy of God, even to the outcast, he turns to experience the wrath of religious men. Gatekeeping their revelation of God. They say to Jesus, give us a sign. Sometimes the people who seem like the smartest people in the room are absolutely idiotic. And you need to know that, man. Common sense goes a long way, and you actually don't need any letters behind your name to have some. Okay, and, and anyone who tries to convince you otherwise lacks it. Like, how do you stand before a man who's performed more miraculous deeds than anyone in history? He's raised the dead. He's opened blind eyes. He's just fed thousands of people with seven small loaves of bread, picked up seven baskets full. He's walked on water. He's driving out demons. How do you stand before this man and say, hey, if you don't show us a sign, then we don't, we don't have to listen to what you have to say. What? Notice what they're doing, though. This... This, this is a, a shifting. This is a, Jesus, you are confronting us with truth. We don't, we will not deal with your arguments. This, man, hear this. I, I will, preacher, I will not listen to anything you have to say until you jump through my hoop. I don't care how true what you just said was, Jesus. I don't care if what you're teaching us is a pure revelation of scripture. I don't care if what you're teaching us is the kindness of God. We don't care if what you're teaching us is a real return to the heart of God expressed in the law. We don't care what you say. We don't care how true it is. We don't value truth, Jesus. We will not listen to you until you jump through our hoops. And watch the response of Jesus. And you need to hear this. 
Jesus' response is, no sign will be given to you. And the scripture says that Jesus stands before them. Now, we read something similar last week. Last week, Jesus stood before a man who was confused, deaf, and mute, and been drug around by the crowd. And the scripture says that Jesus sighed with compassion. But now this week, Jesus is standing before the Pharisees, and the scripture says that he's grieved in his spirit. R.C. Sproul, said, great teacher, said it this way, that this was a moment where, humanly speaking, Jesus was so exasperated. Like, just exhausted with this kind of religious, I don't care if what you're saying is true, I don't have to listen to you until you jump to my... He was just exhausted. And Jesus stood before them and just... And watch what Jesus does. He says, no sign will be given to you. In other words, I'm not playing your games. You don't get to demand of me miraculous works so that you get what you want. No, like, I've given you truth and truth and truth, and you don't want to deal with it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not playing your game. And then the scripture says so dramatically, this is terrifying. The, the English just does not do it justice. The scripture says Jesus left them. But the Greek here implies a kind of permanent, I'm done with you. He gets in the boat and he goes the other direction. And it's as if Jesus here is putting a period to this conversation. The conversation is over. You get no more of my time. I'm no longer coming back to debate with you. This is dead. And when God... Man, I think R.C. Sproul said it this way. I think it was Sproul who said, so many times we teach that God's patience is unending. And that is scripturally untrue. God's patience, scripturally speaking, wears out from time to time with people. I, I know that might throw off your theology, but there are many times where, where people are given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and scripturally speaking, God walks the other direction. God says in, in the prophets, I've held up my hands to you all day long. I've offered you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Now it's judgment. And some of us play games with church. And you come to church, and again, you hope for the life coach to encourage you. And man, we want you to be encouraged. We want you to feel fulfilled in Jesus but we're not going to stand here and encourage you in your selfishness and sin. You come to church because you want a pat on the back and you play games with God and you play games with God and you play games with God and you go, tomorrow I'll get right with God. God's going to be patient with me. He has to be patient with me. Man, there are times where God's patience runs out. And I don't, I would seriously, gosh, I'm, I don't know who made me so grouchy this morning. I think it was, it had to have been Brad. Um, if you are living in a place of consistent, constant sin, coming to church, hopeful for joy, knowing you're dishonoring God, knowing you're spitting on this gospel, I question your salvation. And you say, how dare you? I don't know. The scripture questions your salvation. It says you'll know them by their fruit. If your fruits, fruits continual dis- disobedience, like maybe you're not planted in the right garden. And, and if you play games with God and you play games with God, and you play games with God, man, there might be a day where, where God says, I'm, I'm done. Jesus leaves them. And he's very much saying, this conversation is done. His patience has run dry. You can grow so hard and so stubborn that even the, even the Spirit's conviction, you've talked yourself out of a hundred times over. I've had people say to me, like, I don't, I just don't feel convicted about my sexual sin. You know why you don't feel convicted about your sexual sin? Because you've told the Holy Spirit to shut up for 10 years straight. 
and your heart's grown so hard and your ears are so clogged up that the Spirit's yelling and I mean, what do you mean? If you don't feel convicted by your sin because you're actually not in any way trying to hear the Spirit. Maybe you've looked for a Christianity that affirms you rather than a Christianity that calls you to die. And Jesus gets in the boat and he gets in the boat with the disciples. And he says to the disciples, again, catch the, catch the construct. He sighs with a frustrated sigh. No sign for you. Why does this generation seek a sign? And then the scripture says, he left them with intentionality and finality. The, again, the Greek implies intentionality and finality. He left them. He got in the boat. He leaves them with no intention of returning to this conversation. He gets in the boat. He's going in the other direction. And in his exasperation, he's frustrated. He says to the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, the disciples, they got that stupid gene that we've got. And they start talking to each other saying, "Man, Peter, you didn't get the bread. We supposed to get the bread. And Jesus is just going, man, seriously. At this point, I've... I've the 5,000, I mean, there were at least 15,000 people present. They just counted the men. With the 4,000, actually, the, the language is very particular. It's 4,000 men and women. The word doesn't speak of just men. So anyway, if you want to have, I mean, he's probably fed 25,000 people miraculously so far. Think I can handle you 12. The disciples still are not catching on. They're not catching on. And Jesus says, in our language, seriously? Are you still so dull? Do you have no ears? And this is the challenge we want to hear. This is the part of the text where we really want to meditate. He's saying, don't you, don't you have ears to hear? Are you so dull? Are your hearts so hard that you don't understand what's happening? Just beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, sometimes leaven in Scripture is used even to speak of the kingdom of God. The idea, again, is that leaven... It multiplies, it spreads. So when he says the kingdom is like leaven in a lump, Jesus is saying the kingdom's going to spread throughout all the earth and all nations will have this gospel. But when the scripture says here, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and Pharisees, Jesus is saying that the Pharisees and, and those of Herod, I'm sorry, that the Pharisees and the Herodians, they have a teaching that is poisonous and wants to spread itself into your soul. Their teaching is contagious, their teaching is deadly. Their teaching wants to seep in and begin to control and pervert everything that's happening in your heart. You have to be on guard against their teaching. So he's saying, now watch. I'm showing the grace of God through healing people, through delivering people. I'm giving you pure commentary on the scripture. I'm calling you back to love God from your heart, not just external religion. I'm showing you God. And everywhere I go showing you God, I am constantly confronted with these Pharisees and these Herodians, these sects of people who just want power and to maintain the status quo. They have no interest in truth. They will do everything they can to squirm out from under it so that they can keep things going in their direction. And you need to understand, disciples, that they are going to teach, that they are going to proclaim, that they are going to spread a kind of false teaching and accusation against me. They're going to do everything they can to spread a disease that will cause you to hate the truth in order to maintain your position, power, and prominence. They love status more than they love truth. And I don't know, as Western American Christians, maybe we need to take that home. 
Do we love our status? Do we love our prosperity? Do we love our influence in the community? Do we love the letters behind our name more than we love the truth of the gospel? Or do we come to the text and say to the text, strip me bare. I want to look like Jesus. I want the kingdom of God. Take this world from me. I have no desires. It's not like I'm laying at bed at night longing for more wealth, longing for more possessions. I want nothing but Jesus. It's, it's only when we get there when we say, I want nothing but Jesus, that when we can really receive the ministry of the Son of God who intends for us to, to carry a cross and die. He says to the disciples, do you hear it all? Do you hear yourselves? Now, what we saw again was incredible compassion to the Gentiles, which should have been celebrated, but rather than being celebrated, he was opposed by religious leaders. And in his frustration with religious leaders, he turns to the disciples and says, hey, don't follow their direction. The disciples are so dumb and dull that they start talking about bread again. And Jesus says, you have got to comp- you've got to conquer your spiritual dullness. You're going to have to conquer your spiritual dumbness, disciples. You're deaf, you're blind. You have got to learn to love truth. You've got to be discerning. But again, the entire premise of our message today is that you can't be discerning if you don't love truth. What are you trying to discern? Many people who call themselves discerning are manipulative and tactful. By discernment, what they mean is I know how to twist things to get what I want. The foundation of Christian discernment is we know the will of God, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. That you know God's will, you know the truth, and you receive the truth, whether or not it celebrates you. Now again, I mean, have good theology. God loves us, obviously. God loves his children. The love of God is so beautiful and profound. God just loves you enough to to not let you roll around and destroy yourself. God loves you enough that he requires of you that you carry the family name well. God loves us enough that he says, you don't get to be Christian and look like hell. We have a a family name, a family business, actually, that sees souls come to Jesus. The question, I guess the lingering question would be, do you really love truth? Or do you want comfort? And by comfort, I don't just mean leisure. I mean, you don't want anyone to talk to you about the issues in your heart. Biblically speaking, every person in the room has flesh. Every person in the room struggles with arrogance. Every person in the room struggles with selfishness. For the rest of your Christian life, there will be moments where the Spirit intends to strip you. If you reject the Spirit of the right to strip you, you're going to find yourself up a creek without a paddle. Why don't we stand to our feet today? We'll get ready to close. Again, I mean, just be really frustrated with Brad. I don't, I don't know what he did to me to make me wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Man, I just, I just feel like there's some of us in the room that brothers and sisters in Christ have tried to talk to us, tried to correct us, tried to bring truth to us, and you know that you've twisted and squirmed and lied. You know that you've finagled your way out of situations. You know that you've always got a rebuttal. You've always got an excuse. Maybe there's some in this room, and you, man, you just know there's sin. You know there's hidden sin. You know it. And today is a day where we just kind of say to God, like, my yes is going to be yes today. 
My yes is going to be yes. I'm going to give you my whole heart. Not playing games with the gospel. Not playing games with your glory. Zach, would you just sing for us for a moment? I just... Come on, we invite the presence of the Holy Spirit. We invite the ministry of the Holy Spirit today to strip us. Strip us, Holy Spirit. Strip us, God. Lay us bare, Lord. Man, as we sing, if you want to come get in the altar, just kneel before the Lord, I want to invite you to do that. If you want to come get in the altar and just profess your your love and adoration, your willingness to repent and receive the truth. Come on, turn. We say yes to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We reject the Christianity that only comes to affirm us in our sin. We say yes to the Holy Spirit in all of your ministry. Holy Spirit, we want your healing. We want your deliverance. We want the deposit of life in the church. But we receive with joy your conviction, your constructive criticism. Strip us. Strip us, Lord Jesus. Church, if there's sin that the Spirit's touching right now, I want you just to begin to repent in your heart. Begin to confess repentance. Or give us the strength to shut the door to habitual sin. Come on, just sense there's some in the room you know you've gone over the line as it pertains to alcohol. I want you to open your hands today and just begin to repent. Expose our sexual sin this morning, Lord. Expose our arrogance this morning, Lord. Brad, go ahead and come for me. 